What a perfect song to lead into Mark chapter 6 this morning. If you turn to Mark chapter 6, we're going to look at a big storm, famous passage of Scripture, Jesus walking on the water, and I'm going to look at the topic of risk-taking this morning. Risk-taking. Are you a water walker or a boat hugger? I won't ask you to vote this morning, but all of us have taken risks at some point in our life, true? It begins in kindergarten when you decide, yes, I will obey my parents and I will go to school. First risk, get on that bus, take that risk. All of us have had risks in our life, changing jobs, but I'll tell you the biggest risk I took in my life, usually risk involves some degree of fear. Is that not true? If you're taking a risk, it involves some degree of fear, true? So here's my big risk story this morning. It was 1991. I was a high school pastor in Edina, Minnesota. It was our custom to go on a spring break trip to, to Florida. I was in Panama City Beach, Florida, and somebody in one of the other youth groups, there were three groups together, decided, let's go bungee jumping. Now, I got to tell you something about bungee jumping. Number one, I hate heights. I hate climbing up my ladder and just putting up my Christmas lights. It is just, it causes me to be weak in the knees, and I cannot believe that we're taking our youth group to go bungee jumping. Now, the bottom line is you got to be over 18 to do it. That eliminates 90% of the youth group. The parents all said, no, you can't. So only three fools do it. Who is it? Youth pastor one, two, and three. So the other two do it, and I'm thinking there are excuses. There are ways to get out of this. I should not be doing this. This is not for... How many of you have actually bungee jumped? Seriously? You are all sick in the head. I can't believe you've done it too. Last hour, nobody had ever been bungee jumping, and nobody in there saying mine should do this thing. And so they do it. It works fine. Now, intellectually, when you take a risk and you know there could be some pain, there's some fear, you know in your mind, I should be fine. I should have noticed a couple things. First of all, this was a Christian organization that was doing the bungee jumping there, you know, playing Chris, Chris, uh, not Christmas music, but uh, Christian music and songs about trusting God, fear not, all these things. Um, there is a lot of crowd. There's a lot of pressure. Now, second thing I should have noticed, there's a pillow, like a stunt pillow like they have in the movies where if you fall off a building, you just fall on the pillow. Why should we need such pillow if I am connected securely and I'm not supposed to hit the ground? But they do their thing. I finally get up there. I get taken up on a 200-foot crane. I'm up there. And I, by the way, right now, I kid you not, my hands are beginning to sweat. Just reliving this is causing me to feel very sick in the stomach right now. I cannot believe that I did this. I get up there. I am so, so nervous. I'm hanging on. And the thing that really did it put me over the edge is as I leaned out, I looked down at the stump pillow, and you could only see it from looking down. You couldn't see it from the ground. It was a big yellow pillow, and in black electrical tape, as I looked down, it says, Are you ready to meet Jesus? <laughs> I was ready to meet Jesus, not in that moment, Lord willing, and I took the leap. Now, the thing is, when you bungee jump, that your stomach ends somewhere in the upper mental lobe of your brain because it's just like, and you go down, 
And I am telling you, I thought I was going to hit the pillow because those black lettering came up so close to me. And then there's just this momentary pause. And then it just yanks you back up. You're thinking, I'm home free. No, you're not. You're going down again. And you do that like five times, and it's about the fifth time that you realize that you have lived to tell the story and live another day. Now, I want to ask you something this morning. What's a risk that you're willing to take? Now, that's a crazy, stupid little risk, you know, just because it could have ended my life. But what kind of spiritual risks do we take for God? John Ortberg says it this way at the top of your notes, and go ahead and get your your small booklet out this morning, a four-pager. Go ahead and take that out, and look at the quote at the top of that those notes. It says, there is something, there is someone inside us who tells us there is more to life than sitting in a boat. You were made for something more. There's something inside you that wants to walk on water, to leave the comfort of routine existence and abandon yourself to the high adventure of following God. That's what we're going to talk about today. So in your mind right now, as I'm praying, I want you to think, God, what is the risk you're asking me to take today? And I'm going to help you think through that, but through the course of this message, what is it that God wants me to let go of, take a risk for, and be totally yielded to Him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that You would help us to think of this text not as an intellectual exercise, but as an experience in faith. And even right now, Lord, I'm going to ask everybody in this congregation to put their hands out. Would you put your hand out right now with your eyes closed? Just put your hand out. Lord, I'm going to ask with those outstretched hands that you give them the faith to do what you're calling them to do today. What is that risk you're calling us to? And Lord, we're going to trust you to teach us. Do not let the messenger confuse the message today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn to Mark chapter 6. Let's get into it. And we're going to see the power that Jesus has, and we're going to see his lordship. Now, I always want to establish the context. There are so many different ways we could go in Mark 6. There are so many great stories. I get to pick one of those. So let me get and tell you what we're not covering today, and we'll see how Jesus' power is being demonstrated. First of all, if you go back to Mark 5, we see his power and his lordship over death in the healing of Jairus' daughter. Um, In in Mark chapter 6, earlier, we're going to see his power over the demonic world, and we saw it last week as well with our our, our message, um, what just happened here. Thirdly, we're going to see Jesus' power over the physical area of life. That's the feeding of the 5,000, and that event occurs right before this event, all right? The feeding of the 5,000. Then we see his power over nature, and that's the text we're going to look at, the, his power over nature, the calming of this storm in Mark 6. And then after this section of Scripture, we see his power over lifelong sickness in uh, Mark 6, 53 to 56. So we're just going to pick that, that second last point, his calming of the storm and his power over nature. He is establishing in the book of Mark that he is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and in fact, the rest of the book, you're going to see that happen where Jesus is demonstrating his power. Now, let's get into our text this morning. Turn to Mark 6, verse 45. We're going to see the panic of the disciples, and first of all, we see their awareness. 
Now, I'm going to read to you, because I'm going to ask you to circle certain things in these notes, certain words, and I'm going to use, I know I know that ESV is in the pew, and I normally preach from uh, New American Center, but I'm using the New Living Translation because it flows a little better. I want you to see this like a, a cine, like a movie, like this is like real-time movie, and here's how it goes. Look at the notes uh, in front of you. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and head across the lake to Bethsaida. Now, remember, they'd already had one storm in a boat. Now, he's saying, get back in the boat. They're going, seriously? Well, you're with us, right? No. While he sent the people home. And after telling every goodbye, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. So, notice this. He says, get in the boat. I'll meet you on the other side. What's the question that someone should be asking, one of those 12 should be asking Jesus? How are you going to get there, right? Now, there's no sign that there's a storm at this point. It's a nice sunny day. It's at the end of the day. They've just fed the 5,000. But how is he going to get there? And immediately it says that they got into the boat. No arguments, just flat-out obedience. Now, before you think they're just totally compliant disciples and like, yep, whatever Jesus says, I'm going to do, I think that these disciples are probably like us when we've been involved in heavy ministry activity. They're probably like, thank goodness, let Jesus take the rest of these stragglers, take care of them, let's get out of here. I am tired, right? Any of you ever taught a, a long teaching season in Bible study, ladies? And then you're like, not that you want to get rid of the ladies, but at the end you're kind of like, whew, I'm, I'm glad for the summer. How many of you have worked for Awana for nine months? Love those kids. Bye-bye. See you in three months. Yay. And then VBS hits. And so we all know that experience of this heavy ministry activity. And each one of these sections, I'm going to give you a little practical takeaway that you can fill in in the space in between the text. First principle is this. What does Jesus do after a heavy ministry season? What's his immediate go-to response? He gets away. He goes and prays. And whether the disciples are saying, get rid of these folks or not, Jesus says, I got to recharge. I've got to pray. I've got to get together with the Father. And he takes time to get away. One of the things that I love about our church is that every once in a while in our staff meeting, uh, Scott just says, hey, you know, enough business for today so far. I want you to take 30 minutes and get alone with God. And all the busyness of all the decisions you have to make, sometimes we just go and we spread out on this campus and we pray, and we walk the campus, and we just get alone and just say, oh, Lord. I've been reading about the importance of solitude and getting away. And I got to tell you, how many today, just if we're totally honest, just feel like most week your life is slammed and you are just, <laughs> raise your hand. Okay, about half of you. The rest are lying, and so we'll work on that next week. No, some of you probably are much more disciplined at taking a little time to step back. I got to work on that, and so Jesus did that. But this whole idea, write another principle in here, with risk comes reward. There's a risk. They're getting in this boat again, even though in their mind, where's Jesus? Getting with risk comes reward. Think about that. Because risk will stretch you. Spiritually, risk stretches us and it'll stretch your faith. If you take an emotional risk, oftentimes it re results in transparency and, and relationships are better because we risked it. Physically, we take risks like, oh man, can I really bench press this? Uh, and it increases our stamina. It stretches us. So what's the approach? Look at verses 47 to 48. Late that night, the disciples were in the boat 
in the middle of the lake. Now, I've been to that lake. It's the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus was alone on the land. Now, we don't know what side he's on right now, but he's still on land. There, it's, there in the boat. And he saw that they were in serious trouble rowing hard. Circle serious in your notes and struggling. Circle those two. They are struggling against the wind and the waves. And about 3 o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them. In other translations, it says the fourth watch. If they dismiss the crowds at 6 or 7, they've been at this. We don't know when the storm kicks up. They've been pushing it for 6 or 7 hours, wondering, are we going to make it? Now, I don't have the Sea of Galilee, but I do have a movie clip from The Perfect Storm. It might have gone down like this. Don't you hate it? I left you hanging there. But imagine if your life is on that pre precipice and you're on that boat and Jesus is nowhere to be found. And so when that happens, it says Jesus intended to go past them. He came toward them walking on the water. Principle number two under the approach. Jesus comes when we least expect it. Jesus comes when we least expect it. I don't know what storm in your life, if this is a metaphor for your life, I don't know what your storm is. But I know that Jesus will meet you in the middle of that storm. You lose a baby. You lose a baby because of a miscarriage. That's a huge storm. Where's Jesus? You go through a painful divorce. Huge storm. Where's Jesus? You have a wayward child. Where's Jesus? You get fired on two days' no notice with three weeks of severance. Where's Jesus? You have a lump in your breast and you find out it's cancer. Where's Jesus? Your best friend in life, your mentor, dies. Where's Jesus? You see, it doesn't take us very long to know that every one of us in this room faces a storm. And I'm telling you, you can fight it, you can act like it's not there, minimize it, but I'm telling you, they're real. And then sometimes the only thing you can cling to is Jesus meets you when you least expect it. 
Now, he tends to pass them by. It's interesting. We won't get into the theology of this, but it's a theophany. If you want to write that down and look it up, a theophany. It's an appearance of God through Jesus Christ. And it says he's going to pass them by. Now, I don't know exactly why he's going to pass them by. It doesn't say he's going to pass them by to strengthen their faith. Maybe he's going to pass them by because they've been here before. They should know that he's got this, that this storm thing is no big deal. But apparently they are short in memory about that he's handled this kind of thing before. And we see their alarm in verses 49 and 50. But when they saw him walking on the water, they cried out in terror, thinking he was a ghost. And they were all terrified when they saw him. Now, they have spent a little bit of time with Jesus. I'm, I'm surprised that they think he's a ghost. Now, maybe it's because their glasses are fogged up, or, but they're, they're mistaking that his, that's him. And I think in the midst of our storms, when we're battled by, you're kind of battered by waves of discouragement and doubt and disappointment, principle number three is we sometimes have a hard time recognizing Jesus in our storms because we just don't want to see it. We're, we're, we're worried. We, we take things into our own hands. And so they're terrified. They're alarmed. What happens? Look at the end of verse 50. But Jesus spoke to them at once, do not be afraid. Take courage, I'm here. Circle don't be afraid and circle courage. Now, all of us fear stuff, right? I love Dave Barry. He's a humorist. He says this, all of us are born with a set of instinctive fears, fears of falling, fears of the dark, fear of lobsters or falling on lobsters in the dark, <laughs> of making a speech, or his last one, we're fearful of some assembly required. <laughs> we all have fears, and we can laugh at them, but the Scripture 366 times says what? Fear not. 366 times. He's, he gives us that command more than dealing with pride, with moral purity, with obedience. He says, fear not. Why? Why is fear not so essential to the Christian life? Because when we fear... When we fear, I believe that that's when we're tempted the most to avoid doing what God has called you to do. If God has called you to it, He will give you the ability to accomplish it. Now, the thing is, I think that He tells us to fear not because it's also, a corollary to this, it's the number one reason we don't get out of the boat. And I want you to begin to think what is the boat that you find yourself in? What is the boat that you find yourself in? That thing that you are unwilling to get out of because if you did, it would cause you to have to trust God in ways you have not to this point trusted Him. Now, a kissing cousin to fear because none of us men want to admit that we fear, right? Just ladies, we've got you. We, we, we just don't want to say that I'm afraid. So we will admit occasionally to maybe that we're worried about something. Here's another way of looking at it. Worry is habitual fear. It's a fear that has unpacked its bags and signed a long-term lease. It has to be evicted. It never moves out on its own. So fear and worry are often kissing cousins. And so what does he do? He reassures them with his presence. Now... I want you to stop right here, and 
I want you to look at your, your notes because we're now going to see the performance of Peter. And you notice I put in your notes Matthew 14, verses 28 to 31. If you just stayed with the Mark text, you would not see that the part that you mostly remember is not Jesus walking on the water and that other one where he calms the storm. You remember the Peter portion of that, but that's not in Mark 6. And so I want to tell you that I, I want to encourage you to pick up two books today. One is this one. This is called A Harmony of the Gospels. So as I'm studying this text, I want to study it in the chronology of what's happening in the life of Christ. And what it does, if you can see here, it shows you the same account in how, is it in all three Gospels, just two Gospels, all four? And we're going to see that in this account, that the section on Peter, that's the only where, place in Scripture where we see Peter walking on the water, is in the Matthew account, not in the Mark account, not in the John account. Now, why is that? Why wouldn't Mark put, I mean, because man, that's a pretty good story with Peter doing his thing and walking and sinking. It, it plays to every man, right? But I think Mark doesn't put it in for a couple reasons. Number one, he doesn't put it in because who is Mark essentially a spokesperson for? If you remember Scott's very first message, he's a spokesperson for who? For Peter. It's a little self-serving that if in Mark's test he goes, and yeah, Peter, the brave one, the only one, you 11 little, you know, worry warts, I'm the only one who got out of the water. Yeah, that would be a little self-serving. A second reason might be that Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels, right? And so he just kind of like gets to it. And since this story isn't so much about Peter's faith, but God's faithfulness, he's going to stay to the main point of the text. John doesn't put it in because I think John is primarily looking at the deity of Christ. And so he wants to illustrate those examples where the deity of Christ is being uh, illustrated. I want to make one other observation. When you study this in chronology and when it happened, we, mo we know that Jesus had roughly a three to a three and a half year ministry, correct? So does this event in Mark 6 happen in year one, two, or three of his ministry? How many think this is happening in probably year one of his ministry? Raise your hands. Oh, you're going to play that game with me. I'm not going to vote. How about year two? Raise them high. Vote with conviction. How about year three? How, like, I have no clue. All right. This is year three. Now, I want to show you something. Year three starts with the selecting of the disciples. If you look at the harmony of the gospel, the first two years of his life is this much of the gospels. The last 12 to 15 months of his life is in year three. This is a very important deal. It's not like this is their first road trip. They've been hanging out with Jesus for two years, and they still don't get it. Now, that is great encouragement to me, because I've been working on it for like a long time, and I still don't get it. And so, if the disciples who hung out with Jesus don't get it, there's hope for all of us. Amen? Amen. By the way, the other book I want to recommend to you is this book. It's called, If You Want to Walk on Water, You Got to Get Out of the Boat. It's by John Ortberg. It's probably the best treatment on this text of anything I've ever read. It's a great devotional read, and I think you should pick that one up as well. And so, we see the performance of Peter, and he makes a request. Now, you got to turn over to Matt. I put it in your notes, but Matthew 14 now. We're out of Mark. Uh, we're back to Matthew. Matthew 14.28 says, Then Peter called him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come up to you walking on the water. Peter makes a request. 
he makes a request. Now, Jesus, we're reminded that Jesus is in charge here. Jesus is in charge. Peter calls to him, and it begs the question when Peter says, hey, if it's you, tell me to come and walk with you, is that faith or is that complete foolishness? Because I think that's why many of us don't know whether we're supposed to get out of the boat that we find ourselves in, because we can talk ourselves out of it. On one side, you say, okay, I'm going to trust God for this. I have total faith. But then there's another part of us that says, are you kidding me? This is crazy. Like, really? And I don't know if you ever talk to God like this, but when I know He's calling me to do something, I go, I don't really want to do that. You can do it. No, I don't really want to do it. And then the Holy Spirit says, you can do this. I know I can do it, but I don't want to do it. And I think that's where all of us live. We don't know if this is a cultivated faith or is this a crazy, foolish idea. So we have to discern whether the call to get out of whatever our boat is, is what He wants or is it what I want. I think Ortberg tells this story in his book about the man, the proverbial man who stands in front of the proverbial pearly gates, in front of the proverbial St. Peter, right? And St. Peter says, well, what's one dramatic thing of merit that you've done in your life, young man? And the guy says, well, I can tell you exactly. I, I took on a gang of bikers who were being unruly, and they were threatening this young woman. And in fact, I directed them to leave her alone. And in fact, I walked up to the largest, the, the, the leader of the pack, the bully. I said, knock it off. And I slapped him across his face. I grabbed his nose ring and I yanked it out. I said, if you want to deal with her, you got to deal with me first. St. Peter says, how long ago did you do that? He said, oh, about five minutes ago. <laughs> Might take a while to get that. And so, we got to know the difference between faith and foolishness. Secondly, and as we look at Peter's life, I think there's a pattern because Jesus works with us just like He worked with Peter when He's calling us to something larger than ourselves. So, first, we make a request, then Jesus issues a call. Look at verse 29. It just says, He says, come. He says, come. It's simple. It's clear. There's no ambiguity. He says, come. And I believe that it illustrates another illustrate of this point that God asks ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Get out of that boat, Peter. Come to me. Are you kidding me? Get out of the boat? Now, remember, Peter asked him to do it, and now he says, okay, you can do it. And he calls us. And if he calls us, he will gift you. And we have to let go of that thing that keeps us in the boat. And so, what is it? What is that thing that God's calling you to do? What is that thing that God says you've got to release, you've got to let go of, you've got to get out of the boat? And I think a worthy idea is this. What is it that I'm doing that I could not do apart from the power of God? What is it that I could not do from, apart from the power of God that's so large that apart from God, this thing's going to fail? What's He going to call you to do? And so we come to a crossroads decision. That's the next step when Jesus calls you out. 
We come to a crossroads decision. Look at the end of verse 29. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on water, and came toward Jesus. Seems so simple. Yes, no. In, out. Up, down. Now or never. And he gets out of the boat. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have loved to be on that boat. I'm not sure I would have been the Peter who would have got out of the boat, but I would want to see this. Because I'm sure there's an infighting among the disciples, and you can imagine going, what in the world does this knucklehead think he's doing? He's going to drown. There's an over-under bet going on between James and John. Yeah, this guy's a fool, you know. And so he gets out there, and to their amazement, he doesn't sink. He starts walking, and he doesn't sink. But when we get out of our boats, I would suggest to you that there's always fear involved. That's just part of the, part of the deal. There's going to be fear, and that's why he says fear not. Think about all the times that God asks people in the Bible to do things that it seems like it's a pretty crazy proposition, and it's a little scary, but they do it anyway. Let me just rattle them off here. Moses, public speaking, hates it. Use Aaron. I can't. Yes, you can. I'll use your mouth. Seriously, but I st- stutter. Moses. Number two, Abraham. Take your son. Sacrifice him. Mount Moriah. Really? Yes. Are you kidding me? The one I waited for? Really? Thirdly, Israel. Red Sea. Got to cross it. It's deep. It won't be. Really? Yeah, start moving. By the way, I think as they started to move, there was still water in there. I can't, but by the time they get in there, it's completely dry. All right? Jonah, go to preach to the most barbaric nation on the planet, and I'll take care of you. No. Yes. No. I'll get on a boat. I'm going to get on a different boat. By the way, interesting how boats are used in the Scripture. You want to go swimming, Jonah? You're going to get a chance to swim. All right? Peter, open your mouth. Now, we know he is the apostle with the, sh- uh, the foot-shaped mouth. But Acts 2, he preaches with boldness. This is after Christ's death, crucifixion, resurrection. Open your mouth and preach. Gideon, you got too many men. Are you kidding me? Yeah, cut back. We can do this with much less. That does not make sense, Lord. David, you're going to take out a giant. Really? And you're going to use five stones. You're going to only need one, but I'll give you five. All right? Ten spies versus two spies crossing into the, the, to the land. Ten spies said, these giants are so big. Two spies say, they're so big, that's perfect. The easier they fall. Ten doubted. Two said, we can do this. What's your thing? What is that crazy idea that you have that only God could accomplish, but you've got to get out of the boat to let it happen? You say, well, I think I, I can teach perfect. Where? When? Who? I'd like to start a mentoring program. Great. What do you need? I'd like to maybe do something in my neighborhood, an outreach. Maybe do a play or something where kids come and, and we share the gospel through that. I want to sing. Do you sing in public? No, only in the shower. I don't know what it is. What is it that God's calling you to do? I'll tell you about mine in just a second. Now, why do we get out of the boat? In this text, why would Peter get out of the boat? Was it for, so he could get a lot of glory? Like, look at me. 
No, he gets out of the boat because who's outside the boat? Jesus. When, when God calls you to do something great for him, he's calling you to join him in an adventure that he has for you, that he's orchestrated for you, that he's planned for you, that he's built you purposely for, and half the time we don't see it because we think it's about us. It is not about us. This story is not about Peter. It's about Jesus. And so, what is your boat? I think, again, it's anything that produces fear in me, especially when I think of leaving it behind. What is that boat that you're in that the fear of losing it or leaving it behind produces fear in your soul? Let me give you a short biography of the Irwin family. Ten years into ministry, God says, you're moving from Huntington Beach to Minnesota. Families in California, no family in Minnesota. Nice weather to frozen lakes. God, seriously? I had to get out of the boat. Before that, I was a freshman at Biola. I had to have a Christian ministry service assignment. I had to go do some ministry thing. Some knucklehead said, hey, why don't you do door-to-door evangelism? And I get signed up for door-to-door evangelism. Now, I don't mind talking, but knocking on doors, facing rejection, I did that for an entire semester. I want to tell you about Jesus. I'm selling. I mean, I I tried everything. You talk about rejection. I had to get out of my boat. How about one for you? Maybe you're in an unhealthy relationship. Some of your boats aren't good things. They're bad things. And they're holding you captive. Get out that, getting out of that unhealthy relationship. How about leaving that job that is completely a dead end or is causing you to compromise your faith and you know you got to leave or confront your boss or take that risk to say, I won't do that. I'm not fudging the books. Another time I had to get out of the boat, I was in a very cushy little job in Yorba Linda, California, a very large church, and I'd been there for six years, and God just says, I think you should go help plant a church or start a replant. No, 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 no. No guaranteed paycheck, 5,000 people to 70 people, that, no, no, mm-mm, mm-mm. I like it here. God says, no, you got to go. And I left. Oh, painful. Getting out of that boat. You been there? God, life is just going fine, God. Why do I got to get out of the boat? Because it's when you get out of the boat, you join him in this adventure that only he can script. Back to you. Maybe your boat is a secret addiction that no one knows about. You got locked away in your little cupboard. You got to leave that addiction. You got to get away from that thing. You got to get out of that boat. Step four. With Peter, what will happen is we experience fear. What does it say? Look at verse 30. But seeing the wind, he became afraid. Second time we see fear in this passage, right? So I'm not saying if you get out of the boat, it's easy. It, you're going to be afraid. It's going to cause you to maybe reality sets in. And I think it happened to Peter. He's walking and he's going, 
This is awesome. There's Jesus. I'm going for it. And then all of a sudden, he looks around and, whoa, those waves are big. And as soon as he takes his eyes off Jesus, we think probably that's when he started to sink. Now, I don't know if he knew how to swim, but I'm pretty sure it didn't matter if you did or didn't. When you got a 30-foot wave, it's not going to be helpful. And so, he sees the wind. He gets worried. He sees the size of the waves, and he moves his eyes off Jesus. Here's another principle. When we're out of the boat, you got to keep your eyes on the prize. you got to keep your eyes on Jesus. Because if you look at your circumstances, it'll never make sense. And secondly, if you look at your circumstances, it'll begin to define your faith instead of Jesus being the object of your faith. Now, I want to do a, a, a let's suppose. What if one other disciple had been with him outside the boat? Just two out of them, two out of them got out of the boat. Could it have been a different story? Could there have been a complete faith story that there is no sinking, there's no like, oh, you almost drowned, because they did it together? I want to suggest if you're going to get out of a boat, drag someone else with you. <laughs> you know who's been getting out of the boat with me? For 36 years, fourth row, fifth row, woman on the end, it's my wife. You know how she, how she helps me get on the boat? She does this. Have you prayed about it? Is this what God wants us to do? Yes. Are you sure? You know how many times she asks that? You sure we're supposed to move to Minnesota? Really? Okay. <laughs> Katie was four years old. John Daniel, who's now 27, was 18 months old. Leave grandma, grandpa, all the relatives. Yep, I think this is what God wants. What's her immediate response? Okay, I'm all in. Let's go. Let's pack. Let's do it. Ladies, let me tell you something. I'm not being chauvinistic here. I am convinced that great men of God who do something big for the kingdom do it in large part because the woman who is whispering in his ear says, you can do it. I'm with you. Let's do it together. We can make it. God is good. He is bigger than this. And quite frankly, when I'm a wimpy little emotional mess, it's my wife who says, honey, you can do this. Don't give up. Hang in there. Don't quit. Take the risk. Make the next step. By the way, it's not even Mother's Day, but this is a thank you, Wives' Day, for helping many men in this congregation do the thing that God's called them to do. Way to go. And so we experience fear because we see the wind. Maybe if someone else would have got out of the boat, it would be better. But then lastly, or next to last, God gives us reassurance. Look at verse 31. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took a hold of him. God gives us reassurance. We ask, God delivers. Write that down. We ask, God delivers. Moses, don't worry about the speaking, the stuttering thing. I'll help you. I'll help you speak. I'll give you a, a, a translator. Gideon, don't worry about the number of guys. Guess what, Gideon? I know you're thinking you're a little wimp and you're in the threshing thing, hiding, doing your wheat thing. You're a mighty warrior. Really? 
Now, God says, no, nah, just messing with you. You're a wimp. No, of course. He's encouraging him, mighty warrior. On a grandpa level, I got a two-year-old grandson, and uh, this summer I wanted to get him up on a boogie board in the, in the, in the pool, right? Now, the kid is barely jumping off, you know, into my arms in the pool, and now I'm going to put him on a boogie board and get him to stand on it. It did not go well initially, all right? So I held him, but by the end of the day, there he is standing on the board, proud Kodak Instagram moment, and for a brief moment, he let go of my hand, and he did it on his own, knowing that Grandpa was right there to hold him and protect him. And actually, he kind of enjoyed being drug around on that little thing. Isn't that exactly the way it is with God? We get out of the boat, we're fearful, we're wondering if we can do this, but what makes it all worth it is that God's right there and He gives you that reassurance and saying, hey, I got this. You don't have to have this. He's got this. And so, God gives us a reassurance. But it doesn't end so well for Peter, right? If you go at the end of the text, what does he say about Peter at the very end in Matthew there? What does he say? He said, what? Why did you doubt? Now, he says it because by he's God. By the way, isn't it interesting how God asks questions that he already knows the answers to? Just an idea. So he asked him, and I think in my humanness, I go, it's not kind of a little hard on Peter? Like, why did you doubt? Instead of, way to go, at least you made it for four seconds, you know? Because I look at the boat and I go, there's 11 other bigger failures than Peter looking away. In fact, they didn't even try. They kind of failed in secret. In fact, I think the worst failure in this passage is the guys who choose not to get out of the boat, right? But I think the bottom line is Jesus realizes that, Peter, you're still in process. You're not quite there yet. You kind of believe that I'm God. You kind of get an idea of who I am, but you don't see the whole picture quite yet. And here's a great principle for you when you fail, when you've gotten out of the boat. God is more interested in your direction than your perfection. You're not going to always get it right. You're going to fall. You're not always going to land exactly where you thought you would. Then the last part of this process is it changes our life. It changes our life. Peter gets out of the boat, it forever changed his life. And even though he denied him later in his life, I believe that was the defining moment in Peter's life that changed him from an impulsive disciple who said a lot of crazy stuff to the one who declared the gospel in Acts 2, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ, and he ends up ultimately being martyred for his faith, being hung upside down on a cross because he was not worthy to be crucified like Jesus was. Now, let's get back to Mark, and we'll see how Mark ends the text in verse 51. We see the puzzlement of the disciples. Then he climbed into the boat, and the wind stopped, and they were totally amazed, for they, didn't, they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. Now, you have to go to the John 6 passage to see a second miracle. Not only did the wind stop, but they find themselves miraculously on the shore where their destination was. You see that in John 6, 21. But the wind stops, 
And he says that they didn't get it, that their hearts were too hard to take it in. At first glance, that seems that's crazy because Matthew says they worshiped him. Well, I think they were worshiping him, but they don't quite put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And temporarily, they want to believe that he's God. They want to believe that he is the one that will change the course of human history, but it doesn't all add up to him. In fact, it still isn't making sense to him that the feeding of the 5,000 was just one more indication that it, he is who he says he is. And that though they're astonished at his power and they're amazed by the miracles, they haven't allowed the most important miracle of transformation happen, and that is they, their hearts have to be transformed. See, I think we see that in today's culture. People see God at work but they attribute what he did to, oh, that's just luck. Oh, you can't say that God was involved. Or, you know, science doesn't really support that. And we're close, but we haven't quite yielded and let go on saying, yeah, it doesn't all make sense to me. But God's in charge. You know the, the painting in the Sistine Chapel on the, that Michelangelo did? If you've ever seen pictures, what is it? It's two hands, and we have these two fingers about that far apart. To me, friends, that's the essence of faith. It's that gap between the two fingers where we have to trust God because it's not, it doesn't feel safe. It doesn't always make sense. But I know God is calling me to get out of the boat. So I want you to pause for a second. Remember when I said earlier, you got to get out of the boat? You got to risk something early on. Did you write it down? If not, take a moment right now, write down the thing that says, I got to get out of this boat. What is the risk he's calling you to do? Do that silently right now, just for a moment. And while you're doing that, Chad's going to come. Don't let this become an intellectual exercise. What is the thing that God is saying to you right now? Get out of this boat. What is your boat? Okay, I'm gonna do something I did not do last hour. This requires risk on my part because this could just be an utter failure. Stand up. If there's something that God's saying to you, I got to get out of this boat. I don't need to know what it is, but you're saying, I know there's a boat that I'm in and I got to get out of it. It's just between you and God. I don't want to ask that question because here's what fear does to a preacher. What if I ask the question and nobody stands? I appear to be foolish. 
or at best, an idiot. But there's examples all over this auditorium that we're all at different times in our life saying, God, help me. I need to get out of this boat. And if I asked that question next week, a different group of you would be sitting down and another group would be standing up. And what I want to suggest is getting out of the boat is a regular occurrence in the Christian life. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing where we say, God, okay, I give. You can be seated. Heavenly Father, I ask this morning, I ask for me that when you call me to get out of the boat, that I wouldn't rationalize, that I would take the risk, that I wouldn't be a boat hugger, but a water walker. Because ultimately, the safest place is to be in the storm outside the boat with my outstretched hand reaching for you. That is my prayer for this church. That we wouldn't be church 101, but church on the intersection of faith and water walking. And I'll be looking forward to hearing great stories of how you worked in these people's lives in the days and weeks ahead as we get out of the boat together. In Jesus' name, amen. I am yours and you are mine. Is God bigger than your boat? This would be audience of participation. Is God bigger than your boat? Yes. Is He the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Yes. Is He able to do the unthinkable and the impossible? Yes. Is it about me or is it about Him? And now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling, to the only wise God be glory and power and dominion and majesty now and forevermore. And God's people said, amen. God bless you.